in the movie Talladega Nights, which I haven't seen, NASCAR driver Ricky Bobby, played by Will Ferrell, at the dinner table with his family, prays to the Lord baby Jesus and the tiny infant Jesus and the eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus. He can't even finish his prayer before his wife chimes in. Hey, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. And he said, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. I wonder how many people share Ricky Bobby's view of Jesus this time of year, that they only love him as a baby at Christmas. We should be celebrating Jesus' miraculous birth, this amazing story about God coming to us in human flesh and being born as a baby. But here's the issue. Ricky Bobby's wife was right. Jesus did grow up. So to appreciate the meaning of the Christmas Jesus, we need to understand who he was and what he did when he did grow up. He was born to save. He was born to save. To save us from what? Well, what the Bible tells us is that we're sinners. We are sinners, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. I know it because I'm one, and I know that it's true of you as well. What is sin? Sin is our desires to make life work apart from God. It's our efforts to make life work apart from trusting and treasuring God. It is trying to live independently from Him. It is trying to make life work by our own design and desires, choosing our own way instead of God's way. But is sin really that bad? Well, it's, it's the reason we die, so yeah, it's that bad. Can't God just lower his standards and look the other way? What if my nice outweighs my naughty? Does that, is that not enough? Is that not what God's looking for? Can't God just forget about it? Do we really need to be saved? Well, God has spent thousands of years unfolding and revealing his plan of salvation. So God thinks we need to be saved. So more than a new iPad for Christmas, we need salvation. We see how badly we needed to be saved and how great God's saving work for us was by asking this question. What did it take to save us? What did it take to save us? Well, one passage that we're going to look at this morning where we'll see at least part of that answer is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, which is in Greece. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, reads this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul starts out in verse 5 of this section uh, writing to exhort the church in Philippi to humility to um, unity and, and loving treatment of one another. That's what he's writing about when he says, have this mind among yourselves. This could be translated, think this among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude, the same humble attitude that Jesus had. What was the, the attitude that Jesus had? What was his humble attitude? Christ was in the form of God. He was existing in the form of God, in the very essence of God, that, that is the stunning truth about Jesus, the one who was born to Mary on Christmas Day in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, who was lying in an animal's feeding trough and not wearing pampers, was the creator of all things. He was God. This could only be because as the Scriptures reveal God, he is one God, but he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as the Son of God, God came to us in Jesus. Even so, he didn't account equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto for his own advantage. What is Paul talking about when he says he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto? What does he, what does he mean? Well, in verse 7, Paul says that Christ emptied himself he poured himself out. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, other places where Paul uses that word, it, it means to render powerless, to become powerless, or to be emptied of significance. So in some sense, Christ, who was in very essence God, was equal with God, laid aside his glorious privilege, and poured himself out. We don't have to wonder how this emptying himself was manifested in human history. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a slave. He took on the essential nature of a slave. Christ entered our history not as Lord, but as servant. As a slave without privileges, rights, and advantages, he was a servant to all. And he emptied himself by becoming born in the likeness of men. This clarifies what it meant for Jesus to come as a slave. He wasn't literally a slave or, or, or a servant in the sense that he was owned by a Roman master. He was a slave in that he took on human nature so that he could serve the human race by dying and being resurrected for them to save them. The word likeness that he was born in the likeness of men, doesn't mean that he was sort of like people, but he wasn't really a human being. That he wasn't quite truly human. But it does allow that he was not human only, 
he was like us or the same as us in that he was truly a human being, but was not like us in that he was equal with God, which is not true of you. He, he was, it was in that he was truly a human being, but he was not like us. He was equal with God. He was God living as a true human. So Christ emptying himself means that he added humanity to his godness, to his deity, rather than subtracting deity or godness from his person. The baby born in Bethlehem was God becoming human so he could serve us by saving us. He could not give us any more. We could not be saved by anything less. We couldn't be. In verse 8, he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. The word form in this verse has to do with the outward appearance. Even though he was God, he came to us in a truly human form. No one looked at him and said, wow, he must be an angel or something. He wasn't glowing. He didn't have a halo. There was an article in, in Saturday's Columbian about how science is trying to determine what Jesus looked like. We say good luck with that. I know what he looked like. He looked like a, a common Jewish male of the times. He didn't look like Tom Cruise or a hippie. He looked like a Jewish male. Now, if you read Revelation 1, he's gotten a lot shinier. And he really is awesome looking in an amazing way now, but he wasn't then. Paul says that in taking on human form, he humbled himself. And it wasn't that he just joined the ranks of humanity. He wasn't like a politician who goes about eating at diners and coffee shops saying, hey, I'm just like you, I'm one of you, I'm just a normal guy. Meanwhile, it's a massive photo opportunity and, and media promo. That wasn't what he was doing. He took the lowest place. He didn't assert a self-promoting campaign in taking on human form. He became obedient to the point of death. He was obedient because the death of, of God's Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, was God's plan for saving people from eternity past. There was and is no other way for our, our cosmic treason against the Creator to be forgiven. And its deadly and corrupting and alienating effects to be undone. Death was the ultimate expression and result of his obedience. Whereas Adam's disobedience was led to death for himself and the, and the human race, Christ's obedience led to his death in saving us from eternal death. So Adam disobeys, he brings death upon himself, the whole human race. Christ is obedient, but he has to die in our place. And it wasn't just any way of death that Christ was obediently to die. It was the death on the cross. Dying on the cross marked him out as one utterly rejected, one scorned and shamed, like the scum of the earth, a rebel, an enemy of the state one to be despised by all. The Old Testament said the one who hangs on a tree or on a cross is cursed. And it says elsewhere that he became a curse for us. The very one who, had, who we had sinned against came in our likeness to bear the sins we had committed against him. 
the one who deserved worship and glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving suffered the curse and condemnation that we deserved. As our servant and sin substitute, he paid the debt we owed. As Jesus said of himself, speaking of himself as the Son of Man, he said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave himself as a ransom for many. Imagine there was a kidnapping here in Camus, and the victim was a very rebellious child from an utterly dysfunctional family. The ransom note didn't ask for $100,000. It asked for your child in exchange for the bad kid. You would not agree to such an exchange, at least on a good day you wouldn't. But Christ came to give his life as a ransom for rebellious, dysfunctional children like, like you and me. This is the heart of the whole Bible. If you miss this, you miss the point of the Bible. The Bible is all about this. This is why God sent his son as a human baby. This is why the one who was in very nature God, who was equal with God, came as a human infant so he could reveal the truth about God. And so what is true about God that he revealed? That God is love and that he expresses his love and self-sacrifice. Cruel, humiliating, death on a cross for the sake of those he loves. Verse 9 says, therefore, therefore, because of Christ emptying himself and humbling himself in obedience by dying on the cross, God has super exalted him, has highly exalted him. He has exalted him to the highest place, to the highest possible degree. Paul doesn't state in this passage how God highly exalted him, but many other places in Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament say that it was his resurrection and his ascension to be at God's right hand, God's place of authority, God's place of highest privilege, his resurrection and ascension to God. And he bestowed on him or graciously granted to him the name that is above every name. What name has God bestowed on Jesus that is so high above every name? We'll see this in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 describe the result of God's highly exalting Jesus. Paul quotes from a passage in Isaiah in which God, or Yahweh, the covenant name for, for Israel's God, the Lord, declares that he is God alone over all that he has created, over all other so-called gods and nations. And he is Israel's Savior, whom they can fully trust. The Lord offers salvation to all, but whether people turn to him or, or be saved or not, all shall honor and submit to him. So see this in Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23. This is God talking. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This means that Jesus is equal to the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. He alone is God, and he alone can save. If you would be saved, 
You must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Both Philippians 2 and Isaiah 45 say that you will bow at his name. You will honor Jesus, whether savingly in this life or in judgment in the next. He came the first time as a human baby, emptying himself of his rightful honor and outward glory, becoming a servant to all by dying in our place to take our judgment. Now having accomplished victory over sin and death, he is exalted over all, and all must receive him as resurrected, exalted Lord. Every person or angel or being in heaven, even in galaxies far, far away, Everyone on earth and everyone who is under the earth who have died will bow to Jesus in honor of him and every person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the name that is above every name. Lord, Jesus is Lord. He is over all things. The song Silent Night includes the line, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. That's true in one sense. We, we read it. We, Mel's read it for us in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But in another sense, in his humanity, he had to accomplish the work of salvation through dying on the cross and being raised from the dead to receive the title of Lord. Peter, when he was preaching on the resurrection and ascension of, of Christ to the Jews, the Apostle Peter, said, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 1, he expands on what he says here, and I'll just read it. God worked in, in his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Yes, Jesus began as a baby, but he did grow up. And God the Father gets what he deserves from every being in the universe. He gets glory from Jesus' death and resurrection and his exaltation. God's receiving glory doesn't add something to God that wasn't already his. It is recognizing and confessing that he is worthy to get credit for who he is and what he does. And the glory of God, that is, his excellence and greatness and beauty, is revealed most clearly and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why at his birth announcement, a band of angels were heard on high praising God and saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo. That's Latin. I think they spoke Aramaic. But in English, it's glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And Hebrews 1.3 says that of Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he is the glory of God. He glorifies God and he is the full glory of God. Did you know that you were created? to enjoy the glory of God more than anything else, to delight in God's glory more than anything else, 
as all of creation has some reflection of the glory of God, you taste something of his glory and what delights you in the world. You taste some of the glory of God in good food or good friends or majestic mountains or babies or marriage. Everything has, has a reflection of the glory of God, even though it's corrupted in this world. But you find your highest purpose, your satisfaction, your significance and meaning in enjoying the glory of God and giving glory to God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. We don't live it or we don't love it. Jesus lived for the glory of God, and he knew that his great purpose was to manifest the glory of God to the world. That is why as he was preparing for his death on the cross, so he's getting ready to die, he's getting ready to suffer for the sins of the world, and he prays this way to God. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And he says, I, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. To see the glory of Christ is to see the glory of God. Jesus prayed that we whom the Father has given to Jesus. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Sherry read the text. We are a gift from the Father to the Son would be with him to see his glory. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Because as God's son, Jesus was the word, the revelation who was God. And John says in chapter 1, and the word became flesh, the Christmas gift became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So to receive eternal life, you need to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it astounding that God would love the world whose rebellion against God deserved eternal death? I mean, that's we we're so used to it. If we've been in around the church for decades, we're just we're used to it. We need to be stunned by it all over again. How could God love us? But rather than leaving the world to receive only what it deserved. He gave his son, who laid aside his glory, took on our humanity, dying the death we should have died so we could have eternal life and enjoy his glory forever. And what attracts you to Jesus is what God is working in your heart to restore what he created you to love, to enjoy, to value, to delight in, to live for above all else, the glory of God. Just like he spoke light into being in the midst of the of the darkness, so he speaks the light of his glory into your heart through the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There may be some of you who love the dark, dreary, rainy days. 
You, you can confess it if you love it. You don't love the light and the sun. You need the love of the sunlight so that you will love the glory of the sun. God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ through the gospel into us. What did it take to save us? How much did God have to stoop down to save us? He came way down. He laid aside his full glory, emptied himself, came as a servant slave, being born into our humanity, humbled himself, obeying to the death on the cross, and yet God then highly exalted him and gave gave him the name which is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, so we could be saved. He was born to save, and he's born to restore us to, to the glory of God. Father, we give you praise for your amazing plan of salvation. We really don't understand how you could love us. We, we think we're pretty good people and we're easy to love, but when we get how serious our alienation from you was, that it took the death of the Son of God, who is perfectly holy and just, and he had to suffer our curse, our condemnation upon himself in order to for you to be just to forgive us and, and give us eternal life. We're amazed, Father, at that at the depth of your love, and, and we recognize how far short we fall from your glory. Father, may we who know you delight just that much more in the glory of the Son of God. Shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ through your spirit into our hearts, Father, that we may grow more and more in loving and living your glory. And Father, for those who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus Christ, reveal to them how great and amazing his love is and how desperate they need the saving Jesus Christ in their lives. Oh, Father, grant us more of Christ in our hearts. May we really, really celebrate his birth and his death and his resurrection and his life and his current living for us and long for his return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.